0: Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and take them and turn to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. Today we're going to try to cover the first eight verses. While you turn there, I'll say a few words. There's a quaint saying that arose uh, in the midst of the 19th century. It was actually 1840s during the gold rush that we often use but perhaps don't think of its origins. The quaint saying goes something like going to hell in a handbasket. And it arose during the gold rush because they would lower these men into these holes in the earth wherein they would descend in a basket and they would go into the heat. And you can imagine the poignancy of that phrase. As language evolves, it has the this... This etymological phrase is turned into a phrase that we use as something to say it's, go, it's going to complete ruin. You say the world is going to hell in a handbasket. It portrays the image of something in the nature of uh, something pleasant and terrifying, right? If I'm, It's like almost like I'm going to a picnic, but the picnic is going to end terribly, Right? Well, everything looks fine, but it's not fine. Everything's going okay, quote unquote, but in reality it's not okay. And in reality, I believe that only eternity will show the amount of souls dashed upon hopes in this world. Uh, but we, today we've, we're going to delve into uh, Moses' warning. Uh, against this world and, 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 and beckoning us to God's grace. And so um, I'll pray, and uh, we'll jump into uh, this passage. But let me pray and ask for God's blessing. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, this is your word. And Lord, we need ears. Uh, it is the evening, and we pray that you would come and help us, your people, to hear this word, which is living and active, and to respond in kind. We pray for the powerful workings of your Holy Spirit to come and enliven and this Word and enliven our own hearts, which are so dull. And we pray that you might come and teach us and that we might truly learn. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. This is the Word of the Lord. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of God endures forever. May he write his truth on our hearts. Well, brothers and sisters, today I have a proposition and three points there in front of you. I will encourage you as I go through the sermon and I get to the end of the first point. The first point is both of the second points and more. So be encouraged. The first point is very long and the last two points are fairly quickly. So, but I want you to consider the state of the sons of God. I want you to consider the state of the sons of God of the world, and of Noah. I want you to consider the state that Genesis 6 portrays of these three groups or individuals. So I want you to consider the state of the sons of God. Notice how this passage begins in verse 1. It begins, When man, get this word, began, to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them. Why don't you get We're just coming out of the genealogies of chapter 4 and 5. We saw Cain kill his brother in chapter 4, and it launches into the Canaanite genealogy. Canaanite, Canaanite genealogy. And then after Cain's genealogy, it jumps into Seth being born. And you'll recall that Genesis 4, 26 says after Seth was born that Enosh was born to Seth. And it says, at that time, Genesis 4, 26, men began, same word. The only two two times it's occurred so far, they began to call upon the name of the Lord. This this word for begin is not actually a common word in the Hebrew Bible. And so when he says, when man began to multiply, he's contrasting two things. The last time it occurred, you saw revival spreading through the world. But this time, what is beginning is a rising of Cain's descendants up, through, uh, up into the world. Both, so we have two, two, two things going on here. Revival is replaced with repulsion. The godly seed is overtaken with the ungodly seed. The weighty glory of God that brought revival and swept through the descendants of Cain has now been replaced with supreme worldliness. Cain's descendants outproducing and taking over the world. Verse 1 is really an introduction to the results of what verse 2 brings. So, verse 1, you see that Cain's descendants, that man began to multiply on the face of the land, daughters are born to them, is preemptive to what it brought about in verse 2, in the sons of God. See what happens. Verse 2, it says, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives, get this, any they chose. We have two distinct groups, right? We have man in the, ver- in the first verse, and you have the sons of God in the second verse. These two distinct groups. Now the question becomes is, who are the sons of God? There's a lot of conjecture, and I'll save you too much academia. But the context is clear. The context is clear that we have, the two groups are laid out that we've just discussed the past two chapters. That you have the seed of Cain, The worldly seed, the the ones that are finding security in the world. And then you have the, the, the godly seed, the seed of Seth. And now the context flows. And to Cain are born all these daughters. And then the sons of God, which is also a title used in the New Testament for Adam, who is, Luke 3, we saw, the son of God. Now his descendants begin to go and intermarry with Cain's descendants. Now, it might be helpful, and perhaps you are of the notion that the sons of God are angels. Um, Just on the side here, uh, the phrase does occur to speak of angels, doesn't it? Right? Job 38, I believe it's verse 7. It says, the sons of God, they sing for joy at the morning. Or if you think of Daniel... When, uh, when Nebuchadnezzar gazes into the fire, he says of this being that's in the fire, didn't we throw four men into the fire? Uh, three men into the fire? He says, but I see a fourth, and his appearance is one as the Son of God. Right? So, uh, this, this, this being, and it, it, it conveys the angel of the Lord, right? The, the uh, Christophany, the Lord Jesus. But if you are of the opinion that these are angels, there's really one major question to answer. Is what happened to all the sons and daughters of the godly seed that were born in chapter 5? You recall all the line of of Seth coming out, they not only had the sons named in chapter 5, they also had all the sons and daughters named in chapter 5. Where are the godly families? Why is Noah alone? And the answer is that in Noah's day, there was great apostasy. That many people left the Lord because they loved the world. And notice why they left the Lord, verse 2. It says, the sons of God, and get that verb, saw. Same word that Eve is used of Eve in Genesis 3 6, when she saw the fruit of the tree that was delightful to the eyes, desirable to make one wise, she took it. Notice what is the detriment of God's people here it is that they love the things in the world more than they love their Savior. And there's a thousand exhortations there, but beware of love for the world. Demas, in 2 Timothy 4.10, says that Demas has left me, Paul says, having loved this present world. Beware of the tempter, and beware of, of his temptations, and set a guard, as this, uh, as Proverbs says in Proverbs 4.23, that to keep your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the issues of life. Watch your heart. But notice the emphasis here. The emphasis is that the, the godly seed marries the ungodly seed. Now, all of the Bible speaks of this, doesn't it? You, don't, you actually don't have to go very far. And Israel, whom this was written to, would have had very close acquaintance with this. You recall that Israel, in the Num, Num, Numberic, Numbers language, they hoard after, the uh, after Baal, the son of Peor, right? When, with, all the, with all the intermarrying that went on there in Moab. Right? Whether it's as Numbers 25, 1 through 5, or Ezra chapter 9, verses 1 through 4, you remember Ezra's outrage that everyone was intermarrying with the nations. Why? Because it's going to lead your heart astray. Or you remember in 1 Corinthians, the, the, really the only thing that Paul gives you, a declarative word on who you marry, only in the Lord. Only in the Lord. Why? Why? Because the one with whom you share your house ought to share your faith. Now, the Lord gives forth His declaration in verse 3 of verse 2. Notice what the Lord says. Then the Lord interprets verse 2 for you. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide, He doesn't say, in angels forever. He's not speaking to angels in judgment, in verse 2, in Adam, in man forever. For he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. The Lord gives the interpretive interpretive decoration that He's withdrawing the Spirit from mankind and shortening His life. I think it's peculiar, and this would take its own message and its own route. I think it's peculiar that the Spirit is withdrawn because of our sin. And perhaps if we had time, we could go and look at the sin of Israel and the temple and Ezekiel 10 and all those things. But I want you to see the Lord gives a promise. My spirit shall not abide. I want you to see the danger of sin. To abide in rebellion is to incur God's righteous indignation. It shall not abide in men if we rebel. Now, you say, John, there's a big problem. We're all rebels. You say there's a big problem even as Christians. Ephesians 4.30 says that we grieve the Holy Spirit, don't we? And thankfully, as we heard in our call to worship, the Lord does not count our sins against us. that He redeems us from all of our sins and and sees us as righteous in His sight. And confirmed by Jesus' resurrection and ascension, we'll have the Spirit forever. John 16. But I want you to grab this. Not only did the sons of God go after women of the world, verses 1, 2, 1 and 2, but they also had great success in this world. Did you see verse 4? Verse 4, chapter 6, it says, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, Notice, these children, these children were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown or name. Not only did these sons of God take for their wives any they chose, but also the descendants in which they had were successful descendants. I want you, I want you to grasp this truth, it would have rung. Whenever, they, whenever Moses' readers would have heard the Nephilim, it only occurs twice in your Bible. Once here, once in Numbers 13, which kept the people of Israel from inheriting the land. It kept them out of the land of promise and made them wilderness wanderers. These Nephilim, they would, have, they would have, their ears would have rung when they heard this, this, this word from Numbers 6. These are the men who keep God's people from entering the land of promise. And here these are these men who are going to keep the sons of God from continuing on, from loving the Lord. Just as the Nephilim would be used later, they were used here to keep God's people from enjoying the the promised land, from Eden. But this earthly success, I want you to see it. It says that the mighty men who were of old. These are the ones that were born to the sons of God and these daughters of men. The literal term is the men of valor. It is the Giborim, the How, the, the, the men of strength and renown. These are the, these are the men who are writ, written in 2 Samuel 28, like David's 30... Gibor Hal, his thirty men of valor, who the first one recorded is said to have killed six hundred men with a spear at one time. These are the men of true name. Not only did these uh, sons of God go with the women of the world, but they had great success in the world. Their children were successful, and you can imagine they themselves were very successful. But sometimes the worst thing you can ever receive from the Lord is success. These men received everything they desired. Notice, they took any whom they chose. And the Lord didn't stop them. They decided, I will will go this way. It will lead me away from the Lord. And the Lord let them go to the deluge. He let them go into the flood. I want you to hear the warning of these first four verses. The world is a dangerous place, and it's full of dangers for your eternal soul. Immorality, the affections that are wrapped up in this world—we know it. We just we don't see it. Christ is to have your affections. What does He say? the father of Proverbs, my son, give me your heart. Christ is to have our hope. He's to be what the song of songs says. He's to fill our dreams and and take our affections of our hearts. I want you to be aware of the world. To try to steal you. And keep guard on yourself. So, I want you to consider the state of the sons of God. I want you to consider the state of the world. Verse 5, consider the state of the world. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. Verses, f- verses 5 through 7, look at man's state and the Lord's response. And man's state is a scary one, and perhaps you see it today. Perhaps you see it in yourself. Hear the depravity, and hear the superlatives of verse 5. It says that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Great in the earth, every intention, only evil continually. He is compounding words to tell you of the wickedness of the world in which the sons of God were living and in which now they were partakers. The way of godliness was lacking, and none walked in what Isaiah called the way of holiness. And so we see the heart of man, which is wicked in verse 5, but then you see the heart of the Lord in verse 6. See the heart of the Lord in verse 6. And the Lord regretted that He had made man on the earth and it grieved Him to His heart. The contrast of the heart. One heart is evil continually. The other heart is grieved. And perhaps you say, Jonas, how is the Lord's heart grieved? Well, the Lord doesn't change, right? But we're speaking response to individuals and to communities and to choices. The distinction between heaven and earth, the the world is full of eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die, and in heaven the Lord is grieved by sins and evil. It is a scary thing, verse 7, the Lord responds to them. The Lord responds in verse 7, So the Lord said, second promise, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the the land. Man, animals, creeping things, and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I made them. I want you to describe this. If God does not terminate for you in the cross of Christ you yourself will find His wrath terminated upon you. It is a promise. That He says, I will blot out man. Response. You live in continual opposition to the throne of God. That God from His throne will decree your end. Or has decreed. God here promises to destroy the world. It is the language of 2 Peter chapter 3 when he speaks of the coming day of the Lord when God will against, uh, against all sinful men and all creation cause the world to be consumed because of their sin. He'll of the world on fire in Peter's words. And a word such as verse 7 just causes you one thing. Run to Jesus who terminates God's wrath. Run to Jesus who has the deluge fall upon Him on Calvary. Run to Jesus who can save the sons of God who have lived in wickedness. There is a great Savior and God is terminated for all who trust in Him, on Him. So consider the state of the sons of God. Consider the state of the world And consider the state of Noah. And this is a very brief point. Consider the state of Noah. It says, verse 8, these wonderful words. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. As we close this passage, notice that in the midst of all the evil of the world, One man is standing here. He stands out among all the others. The Lord saw, verse 5, all this wickedness. But then there's one man in all of creation in whom it says, In the eyes of the Lord, this man found grace. It is a stark contrast. The world going into chaos, but a man standing. It is the often used illustration by me. It, it, it feels so much like Athanasius when he stands before the tribunal, the Roman tribunal for orthodox theology and they say all the world's gone into Arianism and they say to Athanasius in this Roman tribunal, Athanasius, the whole world is against you. What do you have to say for yourself? And it's almost as though Noah, he stands and he says, then I guess I'm against the whole world. He says, all have rejected the Lord, but by grace experiential, I hold fast to Him. You have to love in the midst of such evil, the Lord shows such grace. Noah's standing was not because he was perfect, but it's because God is gracious. It's not because Noah was sufficient, but because God's great mercy and his promises. Noah is not lovely in himself, but we hear the word of the Lord that the Lord brings to him undeserved love and favor. Aren't you glad that in a world such as described here in these verses, that the grace of God finds men? Are you glad to be found by God's grace? You say with the hymn writer, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. It is great to be a Christian. Um, Time will tell, and as we go through, uh, we'll see that the grace of God to Noah changed Noah. And the grace of God changes us. God's, uh, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It is impossible for those who have tasted and experienced grace to live an unchanged life. The Apostle Paul says, by grace you have been saved. But then he says, this is Ephesians chapter 2, 8, and he says in verse 10, he says, you are created in Christ Jesus for good works. And so as we say, well, we'll get to see the riches of grace that we have in the Lord Jesus, the riches of grace that Noah had, and how it calls us to live for him. But brothers and sisters, in him, in Christ, we see fullness of riches and fullness of grace. And so let's turn to him and hold fast in this world. Let's pray.